0: Our passage this morning is once again taken from the gospel according to Luke. Um, This morning we'll be looking at Luke chapter 9 verses 18 to 27. Luke chapter 9 verses 18 to 27. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him and he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah. And others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged them and commanded them to tell no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. This is the word of our Lord. Please be seated. And let's pray again together. Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you for this passage of Scripture. For Lord, in this passage of Scripture, we see clearly that you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the Anointed One. Lord Jesus, you are our prophet, our priest, and our king Lord Jesus, we praise you for who you are and we praise you for what you came to do. Lord Jesus, we praise you for your suffering. For Lord, in your suffering and in your death, we have life. For Lord, you died for our sins. As your Father poured out his holy wrath on you in our place. And Lord Jesus, we praise you that you have called us to follow you. Lord, we see from your word that you call us to follow you in everything. Even on the road of suffering. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us through the power of your Holy Spirit to follow you. Help us, Lord, to confess you before all people. Lord, help us to be faithful for the glory of your name and for the building of your church. Amen. Luke wrote his gospel account so that Theophilus would have certainty concerning the things that he wrote. And with this passage, we're coming to the summit of Luke's gospel account. We're ascending to the mountaintop. And with this, with this we're reaching the crescendo of the answer of the question of who Jesus is. We've been building to this moment through our studies in the gospel according to Luke, but especially in the past few weeks. But going all the way back to the beginning of of Luke, we we see clearly who Jesus is. In Luke 2.11, at the birth of Jesus, the angels declared, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And then in Luke 2.26, at the presentation of Jesus in the temple, we see Simeon. As, he's been revealed, as the Lord has been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit, he was promised that he would not see death until he had seen the Lord's Christ. In Luke 4.18, at the outset of, of Jesus' ministry, he declared that the Holy Spirit has anointed him to proclaim good news to the poor. In Luke 4, 41, as Jesus was casting out demons, he silenced them as they were cast out and they cried out, you are the Son of God, because they knew that he was the Christ. And as Jesus called his disciples, they began to wonder who he was. As he traveled, proclaiming the kingdom of God and, and healing and, and people far and wide, came to him. They came in droves, wondering who he was. The religious leaders came out in force as well, also wondering who he was, scrutinizing him. And when Jesus healed the paralytic, pronouncing his sins forgiven, they said, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Even John the Baptist, Jesus' herald, began to wonder and sent two of his disciples in Luke 7:19, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And then when the sinful woman came to Jesus and anointed him with ointment at the party, the, and Jesus pronounced her sins forgiven, the people around the table said, Who is this who even forgives sins? When Jesus calmed the storm of the Sea of Galilee. The disciples had been afraid at the storm, but they were terrified when they saw and understood to a st- They wondered who was in the boat with them, and they cried out, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and water? And they obey him. When Jesus sent out the apostles two by two throughout the region of Galilee to minister and to heal, the wicked tetrach Herod wondered, Who is this about whom I hear such things? Now, they were all looking for the Messiah. But very few of them had good motives. The majority were looking for him with bad and selfish motives. And none of them knew if Jesus was truly the one they were looking for. And many of them would discover that Jesus was not the Messiah they were looking for. This passage, along with what we're going to look at next week, is Mark's crescendo to the answer of Jesus' question, who do you say that I am? The parallels are in Matthew 1613 to 16, and Mark 8, 27 to 29, where we hear Peter's confession, you are the Christ. Next week, we're going to hear the answer, from God himself. The question of who Jesus is is a crucial one. It's the most important question. I remember a number of years ago when I just moved back from Australia and and I've shared this story before but I I met a guy going up in the the gondola um, to to go up snowboarding and and we we were talking in the gondola and then when I was leaving at the end of the day he was parked just a couple of cars away from me, and, and he was leaving just as I was leaving. And we began to, to talk. We began to talk about, about the things of the Lord. And so I, I went out for him, and we, and we went and, and, and talked in a, in a pub and, and talked about, about the Lord. And then it turned out he, he lived around the corner uh, from, from where I was staying, and he was, this, this, this man was was living with his girlfriend, he was smoking pot, he, was, he would swear like you could not believe. And then after a couple of weeks, I was over there for dinner, and he, he said, yeah, I'm a Christian. I, I, I prayed a prayer when I was at camp when I was 16. And if I'd had a drink in my mouth, I would have, would have spat out. But I was thinking, what do I do? How can I talk to this man about what, what the nature of Christianity really is. And and so in God's providence, I was reading an excellent book called Tell the Truth by Will Metzger. It talks about the, the God-centered gospel versus the man-centered gospel. And and the next morning as I was reading it, it was for one of my classes, he talked about this as a very example, like somebody who supposedly prayed a prayer when they were at camp when they were 16, but was very clearly not living for the Lord. This was God's providence. And and so I began to pray, Lord, what do I do? How do I talk to this man? And, and so I, I asked him, I said, who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? And I left it at that and then came back about a week later and, and, and he said, I'm not a Christian. Jesus isn't, isn't my Lord. I don't, I don't, he's not the Lord of my life. He's, I'm not a Christian. And I said, okay, now we can talk about what the nature of Christianity really is. But this question, who is Jesus? Who do you say that Jesus is? This is the most important question. Maybe it's the question that is in your heart and your mind right now. Maybe you're wondering, do I really believe the stuff that this pastor is talking about week in, week out? Do I, do I really believe that, that what the Bible is teaching about Jesus is true? Do I really believe this testimony of who Jesus is? It is the most important question. But it's not enough just to get the right answer. You need to know what it means as to who Jesus really is. You need to know the implications of Jesus being the Christ. You need to know the implications for Jesus, and you need to know the implications for yourself. So in this passage, and P- after Peter's confession of who Jesus is, Jesus explains what it means for him to be the Messiah. He explains what it means, also what it means for his disciples that he is the Messiah. And what does it mean for you that Jesus is the Messiah? And what does it mean for you to be his disciple if you truly are his disciple? There are three key sections in this passage. In verses 18 to 20, we see the confession of Jesus as the Christ. And then in verses 21 and 22, we see the implications for the Christ. And then in verses 23 to 27, we see the implications for the Christ's followers. Now, as we think back to the beginning of of Luke chapter 9, remember Jesus had begun to focus his attention more intentionally and more specifically on the disciples. He was preparing them, he was beginning to prepare them for their discipleship after his departure. At this point, we're about a year out from the crucifixion. After this, he is, he is now going to set his face towards Jerusalem and towards the cross. He knows that he's going to depart. And so, so the disciples are going to be increasingly the direct focus of Jesus' ministry. Remember, at the beginning of the chapter, he had, he'd sent them out to do the ministry that he had done, to preach the good news of the kingdom and to heal. And then we saw last time that, that, um, he, that when he had attempted to w- withdraw with them after their, their short-term missions trip, that he had attempted to dr- withdraw with them and the crowds followed. And as the disciples realized that these people were there and it was getting darker, they had no food, that Jesus knew that this was a teachable moment. And so as he miraculously provided food, bread and fish for for 5,000 men plus women and children, he used the disciples as his ministers to participate in his ministry. And he was teaching the disciples that they must minister through his power and his provision. Now these were vital lessons that must be drilled home into the hearts of these men, because he is going to be leaving soon, and they would continue his ministry. Or rather, he would continue his ministry through them. But as Jesus' departure approaches, there is another, even more fundamental lesson that they must learn. And it relates to this very question of who Jesus is. It's about his person, and it's about his work. And it's essential that the disciples get this right. Again, he's, he's beginning to prepare them for their ministry. And part of their ministry is actually a ministry of suffering. So he is showing them that he is about to suffer. And he's going to begin to show them why he must suffer. And that as they follow him, that they also must suffer. His Suffering is going to become a major theme leading up to the cross. And so now at the beginning of this passage... Jesus really withdraws with the disciples. He goes even further away so that he can teach the disciples alone, so that he can teach them who he is and what it means for him and what it means for them. And it's a lesson that is essential for us to get right as well. We also must know who Jesus is, what it means for him, and what it means for us. So first of all, in verses 18 to 20, the confession of Jesus as the Christ. Again, after feeding the 5,000, Jesus withdraws with the disciples again. Remember, last time he tried to withdraw to the environs of Bethsaida, but that wasn't far enough to get away from the crowd. So he goes further away. He travels north, all the way to the northern part of Israel, to the extreme north. He wants to have a private conversation with the 12. Matthew and Mark describe this as taking place at Caesarea Philippi, the place that that Philip the Tetrarch, Herod's brother, had prepared in in honor and in homage to Caesar Augustus. This is at the foot of Mount Hermon. It's a very impressive place. At 2,814 meters, the peak of Mount Hermon is over 500 meters higher than the summit of Big White. And because of the the low land around it, it has a very high prominence. It's a very high mountain. And also at the base of Mount Hermon is the temple of the Greek idol pen. You can still go there. It's, It's still there. You can see it to this day. And so this location Mount Hermon is important here and Jesus chose this location very intentionally. It's going to figure this location is also going to figure very prominently in our next passage as well. But before Jesus begins to tell the, the disciples what he wants to say, he prays. Jesus prays. He was praying alone with the disciples nearby. Now, Jesus' life is marked by prayer, but especially at pivotal moments. And I really hope the same is true for you. I hope that that your life is marked by prayer, but especially at pivotal moments. So when you read in the scriptures that Jesus withdrew to pray, you know that something very important is about to happen. Well, what do you think Jesus prayed about as he prayed here in this in this verse? I think you're going to find out in a moment. Jesus asks the disciples, who do the crowds say that I am? Now notice that the the disciples didn't go to Jesus with the question. He went to them with the question. And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old had risen. We saw this earlier back in verse 7 that this is what Herod had heard as well. This is what the crowds were saying. Now back in Luke 3.15, the crowd had wondered whether John the Baptist was the Messiah. And now it's the other way around. Now the crowd is wondering whether Jesus is John the Baptist. But as a pastor friend of mine taught on, this, on, on, a, similar, on a parallel passage, that opinion doesn't hold water. That was a joke. The people saw Jesus as an important eschatological figure. They saw him as the fulfillment of Scripture. They didn't understand how he was the fulfillment of of Scripture or or specifically what he came to do in the fulfillment of Scripture, but they, they knew that there was something unique, something special about Jesus. Now they viewed him with respect, but they still lacked insight into who he really was. Reminds me of what I, I see taking place in our culture. That there are a variety of opinions as to who Jesus is. Some might concede that he was a good man or, or, or a wise teacher or even a prophet. And Jesus was all of those things. However, if he was only those things, he was none of those things. If Jesus was only a good man or only a wise teacher or only a prophet, he was none of them. Jesus is about to declare who he really is. And and if Jesus is not who he says he is, then he isn't the Lord. He's either a liar or he's a lunatic. He can't be a good man or a wise teacher or a prophet unless he really is the Lord. So now Jesus asks the disciples themselves, but who do you say that I am? Not just about what the crowds are saying. What do you say? They've been walking with him closely. They've they've seen the miracles that he's performed. They've, They've heard his teaching. Who do you say that I am? Well, as usual, Peter speaks for the others and he answers, the Christ of God. The Christ of God. Now, Christ is not Jesus' surname. It's his title. The term Christ comes from the Greek word for anointed one, Messiah in Hebrew. Now, anointing in the Old Testament was was anointing with oil, and it was done for special service, especially for prophets, priests, and kings. And the Jews rightly saw in the Old Testament the promise that one day God is going to send a deliverer. And he wouldn't just be an anointed one. He would be the anointed one. He would be the Messiah, the Christ. He would be the chief prophet, the high priest, the eternal king. And the Jews, even though they did not understand what that meant, that they were looking forward to his coming. That he would come in the lineage of David. Now the parallel in Matthew records Peter's full answer. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so Peter here has a, he has a sense of, of, of who Jesus really is. But as we'll see in a moment, he doesn't have the full picture. He doesn't understand the implications of who Jesus is. Only the resurrection will help Peter and the other disciples to see Jesus for who he is fully. But the fact that Peter recognizes Jesus as the Christ at all is a massive realization with huge implications. It's remarkable that he would understand this, even to this level. Now, you might think of the Testament scripture and say, well, duh. It's obvious. Look at him he, 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 he just fed probably 10,000 people miraculously. We, we've seen him calm the storm. We, we've seen him cast out demons and, and raise the dead. Obviously, he's the Christ. But you need to understand that, that we tend to look at these things as those who have we have the New Testament. We have the scriptures of the New Testament. These are things that, that we just take for granted because we've been, we've been taught them again and again and again. We also have 2,000 years of church history to inform us. But remember that this is the very first time that any human being has actually declared who Jesus is. The first time ever. Angels and demons had declared it. They declared that Jesus was the Messiah, but to this point, no human being had done it ever. For all his impetuosity, Peter is dauntless, at least for now. I think one of the things, as an aside, that we have to realize is that that often our strengths have a corresponding weakness, and part of growing in maturity is beginning to figure that out. But how did Peter figure this out? How did the same man who with the others was terrified when Jesus calmed the storm and, and wondered who Jesus is, suddenly get it? I believe the answer is in verse 18. I believe Peter's answer in verse 20 is the answer to Jesus' prayer in verse 18. That when Jesus prayed, he was praying specifically for the disciples as he was about to ask them this question God revealed this to Peter God revealed to Peter that Jesus is the Christ Turn with me in your Bible for a moment to Matthew chapter 16 This is the parallel passage Look at verse 17 after Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus answered him, verse 17, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter didn't just figure this out. This answer has been revealed to him by God. Well, so let's come back to the question for you. Who do you say Jesus is? And how are you going to figure it out? Are you going to rely on the opinions of men? Are you going to look to popular culture? Will you be deceived by fake news? Will you form your own speculations, presuppositions and conclusions? I hope and pray not your understanding of who Jesus is must be revealed to you by God through his holy word. If you want to know who Jesus is, you need to go to the scriptures. Now, as I mentioned earlier, we have the, the, the benefit of the New Testament, but it's there in the Old Testament as well, isn't it? All the way through the Old Testament, it all points to Jesus Christ. It all points to who Jesus is and and what Jesus is going to do. But it's there in shadows and types. We get the fullness in the New Testament. As we look at the whole biblical picture of who Jesus is, we understand who he is. Flesh and blood will not give you the answer. God must reveal who Jesus is to you as well. And I think most of us would get the right answer. Most of us could present a a pretty detailed and accurate Christology. And that's excellent. It's a really good start. But it's not enough to get the right answer. This isn't a, a fill in the blank quiz. As G.C. Rao warns, let us not be content with a religion of this kind. It will not save us to talk and speculate and exchange opinions about the gospel. He says the Christianity that saves is a thing personally grasped, personally experienced, personally felt, and personally processed. You can get the right answer but fail miserably because of your failure to understand the implications of your answer. The implications of Jesus being the Christ, the implications for Jesus himself, and the implications for you. So, as you'll see in a moment, Peter got the right answer, but he was dreadfully wrong in failing to understand the implications of what he was saying. And so now Jesus begins to discuss the implications. Verses 21 and 22. The implications for the Christ. The implications for the Christ. Having established in no uncertain terms that Jesus is the Christ, Luke now records Jesus' instruction as to the implications for the Christ. His person has been presented, and now we're going to hear about his work. Jesus is going to teach the disciples and us about his work. And Jesus begins by focusing on the necessity of his suffering. The Christ will be exalted, but only after suffering. But first, Jesus commands his disciples to keep his identity a secret. And we've talked about this before. This is sometimes referred to as the messianic secret. You see this is in Matthew as well, but especially in Mark. Jesus sometimes commands people not to tell others who he is. Now the question is why? Well, I think you'll see it in the next verse. But there's already been many revolts by people who claimed to be the Messiah. People would follow anyone who, almost anyone who claimed to be the Messiah. And Jesus was seeking to avoid a messianic frenzy. Many Jews were eagerly looking for the Messiah, but for deliverance from Roman occupation. They were looking for a political Messiah. People are still looking for a political Messiah. But Jesus didn't come to be a political Messiah, at least not yet. It's a matter of timing. So then, why does Jesus keep his ad- want to keep his identity as, as the Messiah a secret? Again, the context provides the answer Jesus' mission led to the cross and through the cross. And so Jesus declares in verse 22, "The Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day raised." If if Jesus was was taken as they tried in in John chapter six to make to forcibly make him king, it would have circumvented the cross. But Jesus knew that the cross had to happen. Now this is the first time that. Jesus speaks directly about his death in the Scriptures. Again, it's there all through the Old Testament in shadows and types, and even into earlier in the, in the, in the Gospel of Luke, because Luke had included allusion to Jesus' death in Simeon's words to Mary in prophesied in Luke 2:35, and a sword will pierce through your soul also. And Jesus had implied it when he spoke to the disciples about the bridegroom being taken away from them in Luke 5, 35, but now he speaks openly about his death. Again, this is the first time that Jesus speaks openly about his death, and it's also the first time that he speaks about his resurrection. He must suffer humiliation before his exaltation. So in verse 22, Jesus uses four verbs to describe what's going to happen to him. He's to suffer, he's to be rejected, he's to be killed, and he is to be raised. Christ is to suffer. He must suffer many things. The disciples had no idea what was in store for Jesus at the hands of wicked men. they're going to mock and torture him mercilessly? Even before nailing him to the cross. They're going to spit on him. They're going to beat him. They're going to scourge his flesh with a, a leather whip tied with, with bone and metal at the end. They would mockingly place a a crown of thorns on his head and then hit his head with sticks so that the two-inch long thorns would be driven into his scalp. He would be barely recognizable even as a human being by what happened to him even before the crucifixion. And the Christ is to be rejected By the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. This is the Jewish leadership. Those who should have been the first to bow before him, reject him. Now the term that is used here for for rejected has a legal connotation. It's it's not like being rejected by a peer group in high school. The term suggests that after, after careful scrutiny to judge someone unworthy as a fraud and therefore to be rejected. These wicked men who had been in positions of authority in Israel now are sitting in the judgment seat of Christ. And It is these men and all men who reject Jesus who will fall before His judgment. The Christ is to suffer, the Christ is to be rejected, and the Christ is to be killed. Already weak from from the beating and from the the scourging he just experienced, he was made to carry the heavy crossbeam through the streets of Jerusalem towards Golgotha. And people lined the streets mocking him, spitting again at him, throwing garbage at him. When he finally arrives, spikes will be driven through his hands and his feet, fastening him to the wooden cross. Blinding white pain would surge through his body as the cross was lifted and dropped into the hole in the ground. And every breath would be agony. He has to put weight on those spikes through his hands and his feet just to breathe. But that pain pales in comparison to the fact that this is no mere man who is suffering. This is the God-man. This is the sinless Lamb of God who is hanging on that cross. He is suffering not for his sins because he was sinless. He is suffering for our sin. And the greatest suffering that he experiences as the Father pours out his holy wrath on his son in our place. As Jesus suffers the dereliction on the cross, as the the father turns his back on him, that is the horror of the cross. And that is what Jesus experienced for your sins and for mine. And this had to happen. Jesus will go to the cross according to his own will. He's fulfilling the covenant of redemption and of love for his bride, not the nameless, faceless mass of humanity. Jesus allows his life to be taken so to give life for many. J.C. Ross says his death was the result of the eternal counsels of the Trinity. And his death was not the death of a mere Weak son of man who could not escape death, but the death of one who was the very God of very God and had undertaken to be punished in our stead. So the Christ must suffer, the Christ must be rejected, the Christ must be killed, the Christ will also be raised on the third day. The cross is not the end of the story. The resurrection is assured every bit as much as the resurrection. The resurrection is Jesus' vindication. The resurrection proclaims that Jesus is innocent of all charges. He was humiliated, but he was also exalted. Not just exalted from death, but exalted in the highest. Hebrews 7.26 says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest who was holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted in the heavens. And we're going to hear more about Jesus' exaltation in the next section. But both the crucifixion and the resurrection are necessary for our salvation. The Christ had to be raised for our justification. Mark Jones says that that Jesus Christ had a faith for justification, a holiness for sanctification, a name for adoption, a body for glorification, all in the context of his offices as prophet, priest, and king. This is who Jesus is. This is who Jesus is for you if you are a Christian. Question 26 of the Baptist Catechism asks, what offices does Christ execute as our Redeemer? Answer, Christ as our Redeemer executes the offices of a prophet, prophet, of a priest, and of a king, both in his estate of humiliation and his exaltation. But in the context of Jesus' humiliation, all three of his offices that are prophet, priest, and king are blasphemed. The office of the prophet is ridiculed as they spit at his face and struck him. And some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it who, who struck you? His office of priest is mocked. He saved others. He cannot save himself. His office of king is challenged. He is the king of Israel that had come down from the cross and we will believe him. Now this is not what Peter and the other apostles expected. It is not what they wanted. It was incomprehensible for them that the Messiah, God's unique prophet, priest, and king, would suffer, let alone die at the hands of wicked men. But the way of victory for the Messiah is not what people expect. What seems to be failure is actually victory. As is so often the case, God's wisdom is the exact opposite of man's thinking. Jesus will triumph by suffering first and then ruling later. So the way of following him is not what they expect either. And much of Luke's gospel from this point forwards teaches that the disciples also must face suffering and rejection because of their allegiance to Jesus. We'll see that in a moment. Luke doesn't include it, but Matthew and Mark describe Peter's reaction to Jesus' statement. That he must be rejected and killed. Raised on the third day, Peter says, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Again, we, we look at Peter and say, what? But again, remember that we have the New Testament scriptures and we have church history to inform us. We forget what it must have been like for the disciples to hear what Jesus was saying here for the first time. They had the Old Testament scriptures there as well, but they hadn't put it together to see that, that who Jesus is and, and that his the suffering King and the suffering servant of Isaiah and the conquering king are one and the same. They hadn't yet understood. So this earns Peter's, this earns Peter Jesus' stiffest rebuke. Jesus turns to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Through the rest of of Jesus' ministry to the disciples, he's going to tell them over and over what's going to happen all the way to when it actually takes place. And even though Jesus is going to tell them repeatedly, Peter and the others still won't understand until the events actually take place. Christ is going to suffer, but the Christ is not the only one who's going to suffer. So finally, verses 23 to 27, we see the implications for the Christ's followers. The implications for the Christ's followers. There are implications of the Christ's suffering for those who would follow him. The Christ isn't the only one who's going to suffer. He isn't the only one who must carry the cross. His followers must carry it as well. Those who follow Jesus must follow Jesus even on the road of suffering. So Jesus says to them all in verse 23, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The application is clearly not just for those disciples, for the original disciples, but for all disciples. He says, if anyone would come after me, if you would come after Jesus, you must do these things as well. These are the implications for anyone who wants to follow Jesus. Jesus gives three commands, three imperative verbs deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Three commands Deny yourself. You must forsake yourself. This isn't just about fighting sin, this is about fighting your desires, your pleasures, your rights even your needs, all of them are to be sacrificed for the sake of Jesus. This is the conscious realization that what you want no longer matters compared to your allegiance to the Christ. Because now you want something immeasurably greater than what you would want naturally. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 talks about this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight. I wonder what are the weights in your life? And sin, which clings so closely. What sin is clinging closely to you? What sin and and what weights are hindering you from following Jesus? From running the course uh, with endurance? The race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Those who are following Jesus are eager for that. That they want to be in glory with Christ. And so they see anything in this life that gets in the way as something that is to be jettisoned. And this isn't a a one-time event. This is daily. This isn't a sprint. This is an ultra-marathon. It takes endurance, requires deprival, but it leads to great joy. So disciples must deny themselves. You also must carry your cross. The apostles had very likely seen condemned Roman prisoners Carrying a crossbeam as they headed towards their crucifixion. This was it was ugly. This is the most arguably the most painful form of, of capital punishment. It was, it was torture. And it wasn't just an excruciating death, but a humiliating death. Crucifixion was the form of punishment that was dictated by the Roman conquerors of Israel. But in going to the cross, Jesus wasn't demonstrating, first and foremost, submission to the state, but submission to God. He would become the sin bearer, bearing our curse. Cursed is everyone who's hanging on the tree. Galatians 3.13. For us to carry the cross is submission to God as well. For a disciple to take up his cross isn't just self-denial, but submission to God as your governing authority. So taking up your cross and and following Jesus is a lifelong death. Again, it's death to self, death to sin, death to self-indulgence, death to self. As Leon Morris says, Christ's follower has died to a whole way of life. The parallel in Luke 14, 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come come after me cannot be my disciple. Joel Green says, live on on a daily basis as though one has been sentenced to death by crucifixion. In this sense, we are dead to the world that opposes God's purpose. Disciples are then free to live according to the values of the kingdom of God. And those first two commands, to deny yourself and to take up your cross, leads to the third, follow me. This is a present tense verb. You must follow Jesus continually at all times, in everything. Everything. This is submission to Jesus in everything. That's what it means to be a disciple. That's what it means to have Jesus as your Lord. You're no longer your own authority. This is a coup d'etat. Your self-government is being toppled. You aren't following yourself anymore. You are following Jesus. You're following Jesus even on the road to suffering. Acts 14.22 says, Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And Philippians 1.29 says, For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. You're predestined not just for salvation, but also for suffering. It has been granted to you. And the one who is truly the disciple of Jesus says, Your will be done. Remember, this is the the third petition of the model prayer. Your will be done. It's, It's the prayer that Jesus prayed in Gethsemane. Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You must follow Jesus wherever he leads, even to the cross. If you want to follow Christ, you must follow Christ in everything. Stop and ask yourself, Are you following Christ in everything? Are you following Christ in everything? Brothers and sisters, you can't do this on your own. You need the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. You need your brothers and sisters to spur you on to love and good deeds. You need the means of grace that that God has provided of his word and and prayer and fellowship in order to to help you to do these things. Are you following Christ in everything? This leads to verse 24. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Again, this explains the previous verse for the purpose of following the Christ. Losing your life is to follow Jesus in walking in faith and repentance. It's certainly that. Turning from to God from the sin that once controlled and consumed you. And although the the direction of your life turns in a moment, that moment when you're truly born again, even though the exact moment might not be apparent to you. This doesn't just take place in an instant, but it takes place over a lifetime. This is a lifetime. Of losing your life for the sake of Christ. But again, this is is not just sin to be forsaken, this is your entire life. All of your life is placed on the altar and left there. Some of us will place our lives on the altar and then we'll, we'll take it back again. We need to fight yourself and put it and leave it on the altar. It belongs to Jesus. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. He owns all of you. Everything about you belongs to Jesus. Give it to him and leave it with him. This is all-encompassing. This is everything in your life. This is handing Jesus the keys. He gets authority in everything, your your work, your relationships, your downtime, even your sleep and your diet belong to him. 1 Corinthians 10.31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Your entire life is to be spent in the service of Christ and others. That's how you save your life. Now Jesus is not talking about works-based salvation here. You don't earn your salvation by doing this. But those who have received the free gift of salvation will do this. This is part of the fruit of being truly born again. And again, if you want to save your life, you lose your life. You give it up. This is, again, showing that God's wisdom is the exact opposite of man's thinking. You can lose your life while trying to save it. Those who are living for their best life now will be in for a very rude awakening. Is there anything that is keeping you from following Jesus? Now, there is absolutely no hint of exaggeration here when I say that nothing, absolutely nothing, not even your family, not even your life, is worth comparing to the value of Christ. So in verse 25, For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits himself? Losing your life means forsaking the world's acceptance. It means forsaking the world's values and its treasures. Turn with me for a moment, please, to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John, which is really showing how you can, the evidence of salvation. If if you're struggling with assurance of salvation, 1 John is very helpful for you to have a biblical understanding of whether you truly are born again. 1 John 2.15 Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. So living for the world's acceptance means that you value the approval of of the ungodly as opposed to God's approval. Living for the world's values means that you are taking your cues for right and wrong from the wicked. Living for the world's treasures means you are seeking the thorns and the thistles, which will eventually choke out your spiritual life. But if you live for the world's acceptance, you are rejecting God and will be rejected by God. If you adopt the world's values, you will be disowned by God. If you seek after the world's treasures, you will lose everything. And I think of those who are rich in the things of the world, but are destitute of Christ. Psalm 37, 20 says, But the wicked will perish. And the enemies of our Lord are like the glory of the, of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. Think of the rich man and Lazarus from Luke 16. Now, the rich man was, was comfort in his palatial estate and, and the, the poor man Lazarus was, was at his gate begging. And they both died and, Lazarus was carried up to Abraham's side, but the rich man went to Hades where he was tormented. And Abraham said to the rich man, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. The richest people in the world, if they don't have Jesus, will curse the treasures that, they, that consume them in his life. The people that, that have the most approval and the most power, if they don't have Christ, they will curse these things. These things can be a gift that, that you can use them for the glory of God if, if you're a Christian, but, but for the majority, they actually consume them and lead them away from Christ. Luke 17, 32 and 33, remember Lot's wife. Again, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. You enter this life with only a body and you leave with less. Your soul is your most valuable possession. It is of inestimable worth. Your soul is worth more than the world. Brothers and sisters, Jesus suffered for your sins. He was punished so that you do not have to suffer eternally. What temporary deprivation, what, what temporary suffering is too great to face out of love for Christ? What path is too hard to keep you from following Jesus? There's going to be suffering for every believer in this life. But it doesn't end there. Thankfully, it doesn't end with suffering. This isn't masochism. It's not suffering for suffering's sake. There is light at the end of the tunnel. Glory is promised. We're going to suffer, but it is temporary. Please turn to Romans 2, verse 6. Romans 2, verse 6. He's going to render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But those for those who are self-seeking do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness. There will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good to the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no you are going to get what you deserve. But for the Christian, you only get what you deserve because you get what Christ deserves. So in verse 26, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. So now we're beginning to see the full exaltation of Jesus Christ. He's going to come again in glory. Again, it didn't end with the resurrection. It doesn't end even with the ascension. Jesus Christ is going to return. And and this is where we begin to see the, the pictures of the Old Testament, of the fullness of who the Messiah is coming into fruition. And Jesus, Jesus is revealed to, to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords as he subjects every enemy. As every enemy will bow the knee. So when Jesus comes in his glory, will Jesus be ashamed of you? he's not saying here, uh, will he be ashamed of you because you, because you sinned, even because you committed wicked sin. But will you be ashamed, will Christ be ashamed of you because you were ashamed of him? Because you denied Christ in your words. How do you respond to Jesus and, and how do you respond to his teaching? Again, who do you say that Jesus is? Your, your statement about this will, by the power of God, lead to a response of obedience, of, of worship, of faith. But I wonder, as you, as you interact with the people in your life, are you afraid of people finding out that you love and worship Jesus? Are you afraid of people finding out that that you believe the Word of God, all of it? Are you afraid of nailing your colors to the mast? Are you afraid to tell others about Jesus? Are you afraid to tell others about who Jesus is and and what he's like? Are you afraid to tell others about biblical doctrine, about about God's laws, and and about God's sovereignty, and about, about all of who God is? I remember as a as a new believer coming back from a Bible study, and on, I was on the on, getting on the bus, and I had my Bible, and I didn't. I was I was embarrassed about the fact that I was carrying a Bible, and I, and I didn't. I was like, oh, I don't want to make have people think like I'm some kind of like a Bible nut. And then it was just it was it was a moment of insanity, really, because I realized If somebody is going to judge me for carrying a Bible on the bus, is that a person's opinion I really should be concerned about? So I walked down the bus, I'll carry my, my Bible. I didn't like wave it around or anything, but I, I, I was no longer afraid of what people would think of me. I'm not saying that I I never am, am tempted to fear of man over these things, but, but may we not be ashamed of Jesus. Because Jesus is not ashamed of us. Jesus knows all of those sins that, that you have ever committed. And He's still not ashamed of you. Because He has poured out His grace and His love and His mercy upon you, He, is a, he has chosen you as His bride. He is proud of you. You're the trophy of His grace. How could we possibly be ashamed of Jesus? Romans 1, 16 and 17, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so when Jesus comes he's he's referring obviously to his return when 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 the the fullness of his glory is revealed to all what will Jesus response be to you it will be based on your response to him i wonder are you trading momentary glory for eternal shame why not trade momentary shame for eternal glory there is vindication for those who follow Jesus. Those who follow Jesus will be exalted as well. So finally, in verse 27, Jesus concludes saying, But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now just briefly, there there are different views as to what this means. There are some who believe this refers to the already part of the kingdom as opposed to the 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 not yet still to come or some to hold that that Jesus is speaking of his resurrection or of his ascension or pentecost now that is a better view but I believe that the best view here is taken again from the context that Jesus is referring to the transfiguration his transfiguration that is going to be described in the very next passage where before Peter, James, and John, that the glory of Christ is momentarily revealed. The veil comes off just for a moment and they see his glory. The the transfiguration is like a preview of what's to come. And there are some standing there, Peter and James and John, who would see Christ's glory unveiled. And so we've seen, this week we've seen Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ. And then next week in the Transfiguration, we're going to see God the Father's declaration as to who Jesus really is. Behold my Son, whom I'm well pleased, listen to him. Peter and James and John hear the very voice of God telling them who Jesus is. So the transfiguration is going to preview the ultimate glory of the exalted Christ. This this program of God that's going to end with the glorious Christ being visible to all. And so, in conclusion, as we we think about about who Jesus is, that Jesus is the Christ, and the implications for him as the Christ and for the implication for us as followers of the Christ. I think of Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11, where where Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is Christ's mind, and you as a Christian have this mind as well. That who, though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. No one has ever been humbled or humiliated like Jesus was humbled and humiliated. He is God the Son even for him to take on flesh and dwell in the midst of a, of a sinful creation is already an infinite humiliation. But he humbled himself even to the point of death. Death on a cross. Therefore, Philippians 2.9, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Peter confessed that Jesus is the Christ. One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is the Christ. But for those who are truly his followers, this will be a confession for the glory of Christ as they go to be with him forever, whereas those who are the enemy of Christ, those who have not followed him on the path of discipleship, will go to endless ignominy and suffering an eternal hellfire. The path of Christ leads to the cross and the path of Christ for the followers of Christ leads also through the cross to eternal glory with Christ in heaven. Let's pray together. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we praise you, for you are indeed the Christ. Lord, I pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would reveal in the fullness what it means that you are the Christ. That every heart will confess Jesus as Christ, as the Christ. And that we will all follow him wherever he leads. For the hope that we have before us. For the glory of your name and for the building of your church. Amen.